Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Legal and Business Outlook session. Uh, my name is Louise Wolfson. I'm a corporate consultant uh, with a focus on ESG and corporate governance matters. And I'm joined by Andy Hartwell, our client insights lead. And he's asked me to tell you that he's not a lawyer, but he brings to us many years of experience in investment banking and business consultancy, managing or advising global portfolios and companies. And that's where he's developed his particular skills in horizon scanning and scenario analysis, looking at what's coming over the horizon and that company directors need to prepare for today. This session uh, is going to look at uh, ESG matters for the C-suite. And the rise of ESG poses challenges and opportunities for boards of all companies, from startups to multinationals and across all sectors. In this session, we're going to explore some of the issues. Now, I'm going to hand over to Andy, who's going to set the scene for us. Thanks very much indeed, Louise, and hello, everybody. Um, COVID-19 has introduced new and accelerated pre-existing trends towards profound changes in social and organizational behaviors. Taken together, they go beyond only changes in employment practice. They bring change to an organization's overall structure, its relationship to the world in which it operates, and so to its governance. In this session, we'll be looking at some of the drivers of those changes, where they might lead, and how directors and senior managers can prepare themselves for what we have described as the rise of stakeholder governance. We did some thought leadership work earlier this year, which into, into ESG beyond E, the rise of stakeholder governance, and it started from a very simple premise. The world cannot afford another COVID-19 which has so far taken well over 5 million lives globally and likely cost approaching $30 trillion by 2025, as estimated by the IMF. But how to improve organizational resilience? That question took us towards an agenda which looked very much like an ESG agenda, but across all three of the pillars, not just climate change and environmental more broadly. To improve organizational resilience would require organizations to address a range of issues, in particular, to address the vulnerabilities and inequalities exposed by COVID-19 in both gender and by ethnicity. Also changes to working patterns, hybrid working, and the extended duty of care owed to a structurally more remote workforce. That pointer towards ESG prompted us to do a small pilot survey amongst our clients to test their views on ESG. How did it rank in their business priorities? What were their motivations for doing it? And what were the particular benefits they, they anticipated deriving from it? The results of the survey itself are in the publication I mentioned earlier, but highlights include that 68% have a statement of corporate purpose, and I quote, beyond making money, a dramatically high number for someone like me who spent a lifetime working in investment banking. Main benefits from doing ESG were expected to be the so-called soft metrics, like enhanced brand reputation, talent acquisition and retention, and improving ESG in society, all of which ranked much more highly than launching new products, getting cost savings, or even getting better access to capital. And of course, companies were motivated by their requirement and need for better compliance with regulation, which ranked highly. Those results aligned closely with an agenda that has been developing at the World Economic Forum. And at Davos, Davos 2021, the World Economic Forum founders said that our response to COVID-19 
would require us to rethink what we meant by capital, to include human, social and environmental capital alongside finance. In the same context, the World Economic Forum spoke of corporate altruism as becoming another motivating force for corporate actions to sit alongside the traditional board motivations of profit and regulatory compliance in order to achieve better organizational resilience. The introduction of corporate altruism puts much greater emphasis on the social pillar of the ESG agenda in particular, which clients told us also that they find the most challenging of the three to specify, let alone to implement. For us, that new troika of profit, regulatory compliance and corporate altruism define the concept of stakeholder governance, with corporate altruism distinguishing it from traditional models of shareholder governance. But it also sets up potential tensions between the two governance models, tensions between shareholders and the wider stakeholder group that directors and senior managers have to navigate if they are successfully to navigate towards greater organizational resilience. It includes the recognition of the increasing significance placed on an organization's social values by its wider stakeholder group, from its customers to its talent pool, and even to its insurance company. For example, I saw recently from the USA insurance companies placing increasing scrutiny on an organization's DNI policies before providing directors and officers liability insurance for fear of possible action for breach of fiduciary responsibility. So there we are, Louise. Our own work and that of other research agencies and think tanks seems to point to a very different landscape of stakeholder governance in which board directors and their senior managers must operate if they are to improve their organizational resilience. Before we drill into those challenges, perhaps you'd like to say a few words on how you see the landscape of corporate governance evolving. Absolutely. And thanks, Andy. Um, well, I think it's clear that corporate governance is expanding in several ways. And I think the first point is increasing regulation. And we are seeing that, for example, in the UK through the requirement for companies to publish Section 172 statements setting out how boards are complying with their director duties with a particular focus on stakeholder engagement and the long term impact of corporate decision making. We're also seeing the scope of corporate governance increasing. Matters which would never have really fallen within the, the framework of corporate governance, such as climate-related disclosures, modern slavery statements, diversity and inclusion, they, those are areas that historically might have been in the voluntary realm, but are subject to more and more regulation. So companies have to ask themselves, who are they being governed for? As you've indicated, the universe of stakeholders has increased. No longer just the creation of shareholder value, but also the creation of value to all stakeholders and the wider community. This will vary inevitably across sectors and industries, but proper governance is intrinsic to being a successful business in the current environment. And boards really need to think about how they create a culture of good governance, whether they want to be best in class or merely just comply with the minimum uh, regulatory requirements how to embed that decision within their organization in a way that is culturally robust and not just a box-ticking exercise. Organizations need to ask themselves, is ESG a work stream or is it an intrinsic part of everything we do? 
And I think these are some of the themes that we can debate together uh, and hopefully provide some thinking points for our listeners. Thank you, Louise. I mean, it's such a remarkably uh, broad, diverse and important agenda. So let's drill into some of the aspects of this evolving landscape. It's going to be a bit of a quick fire round in the time available to us and the ground that we have to cover. So let's make a start. Um, first off the bat, um, does corporate altruism, this concept introduced and discussed by the World Economic Forum, does it need help from regulation? And I think the answer is yes. Um, I think historically, if we, if we look at corporate altruism across the E, S and G pillars, I think we say that the E has been quite well regulated in the past compared to S and G. Um, we've seen regulation of oil and gas companies leading the way. But climate change is now so firmly on the agenda across all companies that everybody is expected by their investors and their regulators to understand the impact of climate change on their own business. And that means having proper data and to have in place a process to identify and assess the climate-related risks and changes to their business and have a strategy to address those risks. So I would argue that regulation has sped up the pace of change in relation to E-factors, the environmental limb. Governance, the, the G, um, insofar as we mean how businesses are run and managed is not new. Um, but as we've discussed, as I mentioned before, governance for the benefit of all stakeholders is a new direction uh, for most businesses. Uh, and I, I saw Hargreaves Lansdowne recently um, stated on, on one of their um, sites that governance is arguably the most important ESG factor when it comes to avoiding corporate scandal. And they, they say, if a company is well managed and managers receive adequate challenge, that reduces the potential for individuals to get away with acts of fraud or deceit. And it means that managers are more likely to take action to limit the company's environmental and social impacts. So my view is that in and of itself, governance is not an area which needs more regulation. However, governance overlaps with the S in ESG, social, and that's what you're um, alluding to. And social aspects are hard to assess and hard to regulate. If you think back to the push to increase more women on boards, very few uh, commentators or regulators advocated quotas. Now, there are obviously some notable exceptions in some countries, but without targets, which is the, the route that most countries went down, little would have changed. So I think what we're seeing is that increasing voluntary uh, disclosure supported by regulatory scrutiny to try out and shore up these social aspects. And I refer to the International Regulatory Strategy Group, which reported recently in conjunction with uh, KPMG um, in June 2021, that a consensus is required on social principles and common metrics with a set of minimum standards is the way forward. Um, and, and they argue that regulation should be used creatively in tandem with other tools to drive social outcomes. So to answer your question, does corporate altruism need help from regulation, I think the, the, the answer has already been made, and, and that is yes. Thank you, Louise. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and I'm thinking particularly about the, your last point around the increasing regulation and need for a global framework in the social pillar as well. But then that brings you into the heart of the debate. What about the tensions between shareholder and stakeholder governance? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is not a new debate, but I think there is a new focus on corporate accountability to all stakeholders. 
And looking long term is intrinsic to a focus on stakeholder accountability as opposed to shareholder accountability. So who, who are your stakeholders? I mean, when we use this term stakeholders, I mean, what do we mean by it? Well, I think there are three categories. There are stakeholders who are inside the company, employees, executives, shareholders even. Um, those who are outside the company but interact directly with it, customers, suppliers, non-shareholder investors like banks. And then the entities who are outside the company but are critical to it, so governments, communities, the environment. And I think each of those stakeholders, we can't just lump them all together and say, we've got to think about our stakeholders. I think we have to drill down into the different uh, requirements, objectives of each of those groups. Obviously, there are overlaps between them. A government can be a supplier, uh, an employee can be a shareholder. But if we take them uh, as ind independent groups, um, once you've identified the stakeholders who are important to a particular business, uh, we then need to define and measure ways to serve those relevant stakeholders whilst balancing this with financial soundness. I mean, we are still operating in a commercial environment and companies have to publish their commitments to stakeholders, communicate and implement plans and metrics and acknowledge and discuss the progress and the setbacks that they make. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is um, efforts at standardizing stakeholder reporting as an important trend. And you referred to the World Economic Forum. They're, they have created stakeholder capitalism metrics that can be used to align a company's regular reporting against ESG indicators. And in the EU and the UK, stakeholder reporting is required for large companies. So I think this focus on stakeholder governance might mean some tough choices actually for companies in the short term, mm -hmm. but in the long term, I think stakeholder governance will align with shareholder governance and that the objectives of good stakeholder governance should produce the results that the historic model of shareholder governance should, should have achieved. And, indeed, Louise. Uh, and in fact, there is some um, uh, research data that I referenced in the publication um, earlier this year that I did, um, which points towards an increase in after-tax profit in the longer term for companies who get their whole ESG strategy right uh, across all three of the pillars. But here we are uh, in the today and the practicalities of life. And one of the things that came up in that little client survey I mentioned before was the data challenge that clients are saying, we need to know what data we need to collect. But it's not just a definition, is it? It's the collection or even the collection, but also the implementation of those data insights. Yeah, and I think you know, you, you've um, hit the nail on the head there. I mean, meaningful data connection is at the heart of a company's ability to report on ESG metrics and be held accountable for what they've said they're going to do. Um, but I would say today's challenge is not just ensuring access to an adequate quantity of ESG data, but actually verifying consistency, reliability, and comparability of the data. And what we've seen is a proliferation of ESG rating agencies, but without a uniform system of measurement, the reliability of those ratings can be called into question. And we saw the Boohoo scandal as a prime example mm. of this. That uh, fashion retailer was given a double A rating by MSCI um, for above average labor standards just weeks before a Sunday Times um, investigation, which showed that its workers were being poorly paid and suffered poor working conditions. Um, so 
we also see other commentators saying how the lack of good data is is hampering their efforts to um, uh, meet their ESG commitments. And BlackRock um, surveyed 425 investors who represent about 25 trillion in assets under management and said that poor quality or availability of ESG data presents the biggest obstacle to sustainable investing. And they cautioned against a reliance on single data providers and ESG ratings and said you need to look at the underlying information and not just at the headline. Now, what we are seeing is the development of taxonomies which enable companies' data to be more meaningfully compared, like the EU uh, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which does make it um, aim to make it easier to compare funds. And these rules are designed to prevent uh, greenwashing and asset managers are being held to account by regulators. And we saw this with the German regulator's investigation into DWS um, at the end of August, which um, looked into claims that had misled clients about sustainable investing efforts. And DWS has rejected these claims, but the investigation triggered sell-off of its assets, uh, sell-off of its investments, and the share price um, tanked and caused major reputational damage. And data really uh, is at the core of, of the issue um, uh, in those cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. And staying with the here and now um, and the practicalities, um, of life in this new governance model, uh, Louise. What areas are you finding that are receiving the most client attention at the moment? So I think I can pick up on three uh, three areas which I'm seeing a lot of. Um, modern slavery compliance. Um, uh, so who is caught by the UK and Australian um, requirements, the queries that we're getting all the time? And I think that's partly, and I know there are similar um, uh, requirements in California as well. I'm, I'm less familiar with those, but um, what we're seeing is that those uh, requirements actually have a sort of semi-extraterritorial um, effect. So clients being caught without necessarily realising um, because the UK requirements also apply to companies that do business in the UK, even if they're not just UK companies. And then the, the, the bigger question, which is not just are you caught by the requirements, but how do you monitor your supply chain? You know, mm. if you're a business that's doing, that's operating in a, a range of jurisdictions, how do you ensure the integrity of your supply chain? It's all very well to make statements about not wanting to have modern slavery in your supply chain, but actually, how do you do that? How do you diligence it? And how do you um, maintain that without um, it, it being a huge work stream in its own right? Um, and do you? Do you aim for voluntary disclosure, uh, voluntary compliance, even though you might not technically be caught? And if so, are you going to be held to a standard uh, that could then trigger potential greenwashing claims? So these sort of themes come back to um, we see that there's Mm -hmm. a link between them. Um, the other the other topic that we're seeing a lot of um, in- inquiries about at the moment is the um, new stewardship code. Um, the stewardship code uh, was introduced in 2020. It was a revamped code from the one that was introduced in 2010. Um, and it's been broadened to other asset classes, not just um, public equities. And 189 asset managers, um, pension funds and others applied to be signatories of the new code. And only 125 made the grade um, and the FRC, the Financial Reporting Council, who um, were responsible for determining who, who would be a signatory to the code, um, said that they conducted this rigorous review process. Um, entities had to apply to be um, on the list 
but a large number of um, uh, significant names were not included and they didn't make the grade. Now, did they not make the grade because of a technical failure to meet the, to tick the boxes on the form or did they not make the grade because they hadn't done uh, what uh, the, the underlying substance of what they were offering wasn't sufficient and um, only, only those organisations will know they each got individual feedback on what they needed to do to improve their, um, their, their applications. But um, this is clearly an area which was, I think, a bit of surprise to the industry. Um, and so we are seeing queries about that. And then the third area, which is also a sort of relatively new area is in relation to Section 172 statements that I mentioned before. It is UK specific, but it's about this trend towards um, stakeholder reporting. And the Financial Reporting um, Council, again, have given commentary and saying what, what they want to see is not just a statement of intent, but actually tying these statements you know, what has the board done over the past year in relation to these various metrics, including how have they um, looked after the variety of stakeholders that we, that we discussed before? And what practical impact has that thought process had on the decision making? So, you know, when the company was looking at an M&A opportunity and they consulted with their employees and they thought and they did a local community survey, how did that translate into a different outcome how did they impact that? So case studies and um, really tangible examples is what is what is being expected. Um, and boards need to think about that on an ongoing basis. There's no point in thinking about that at the end of the year when you come to write your report. At the point of making your decision, you have to have really thought about these issues. Um, and and it's about long term um the long-term outcome of the decisions that you're taking in the here and now, not just the, the short term as well. So I say those are the three topics that I'm getting a lot of queries from clients on at the moment. Mm. Mm. Um, and clearly, you know, much more still to come, uh, Louise. I'm just conscious of the short time uh, available to us to cover this vast landscape uh, this uh, today. Um, and so I know that, you know, you're looking at in terms of what's coming down the line. Uh, at the SCA discussion paper on possible DNI regulation, uh, as well on climate-related disclosures, so all of those things still to come and unfold as well. But I wanted to get to the point about, you know, as we draw this to a conclusion, maybe some references back to that. But what are your top three takeaways, say, that you'd like to leave our audience with um, <laughs> at the end of this session, <laughs> if that's possible? Well, I'll do my best. I mean, you know, um, uh, and I'm sure you could ask lots of um, lawyers and commentators and they'll all give you a different answer. So this is purely my own my own take. But I would mm. say, what are the three things that board should be doing right now? I think rather than focusing on an ESG strategy by name, I think boards need to define their corporate purpose. And I think once you've defined your corporate purpose, the ESG strategy piece flows from that. And you know, you do need a board champion for ESG matters. You do need to embed ESG within your culture. But I think the way to do that is to be really clear uh, about your corporate purpose. So I would say that's that's point one. Um, point two is identify your key stakeholders. You know, I, I mentioned before about the different um, categories of stakeholders and who is important to a business will differ from um, business to business. But I think you identify the stakeholders, you engage with them, you embed stakeholder considerations in all levels of your decision making rather than merely reporting on them, as I said before, after the event. 
And then the third thing I would say is to pick one or two ESG goals for the short term, rather than trying to solve ESG for your business um, for the long term right now. I think just just pick a couple. And then investors and regulators would rather that you were really open about saying, this is what we're going to try and achieve. We're going to try and, you know, really deal with our diversity inclusion um, approach. We're going to really ensure that our supply chain is um, as free as we can make it of modern slavery. And those are going to be the two things we're going to focus on in the next financial year and hold us to account for those things. And we will continue to try and grow and develop and be better but um, in, in the short term, in the long term, but in the short term, that's what we're going to focus on. Thank you, Louise. I'm very pragmatic um, in, an, in a huge subject as well. And I love the fact that you, went, you, you, you drew out the fact, the importance of corporate purpose as well, looping back onto the results from our survey showing that 68% of our clients had a corporate purpose statement beyond making money. And I think on that rather enigmatic and challenging note, I'm going to say thank you to you, Louise, for your insights uh, here in this session. And thank you to all of our audience as well for staying with us throughout it uh, as well. With that, thank you very much indeed. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from Louise. Thank you.